back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Adam Andrews. Heidi, Adam, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks, David. Good to be back. So we are here to answer listener questions about Ralph Moody's book, Little Bridges, which, of course, we have been talking about over the last, what, seven, eight weeks. So we're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, don't forget about all the great content going on. We have... Macbeth, Act 4 going up, I believe, today. Today is Friday, May 17th. That should be up today sometime. Logan's working on that now, making it listenable. So that'll be up soon. We have The Daily Poem. We have Libromania. We have lots of great content for you. So if you are you know, in the mood, check it out. Let us, let us know if you like it. Starred reviews, subscriptions, comment reviews, all that stuff goes a long way. We'd appreciate that. Um, and we want to let you know about our friends over at Classical Academic Press. Because if you are a busy school or homeschool educator who is enthused about the classical tradition of education, uh, maybe you wish you had been classically trained yourself. Well, they created Classical U with you in mind. And they are confident that this is a resource that will inspire educators in schools, homeschools, and co-ops to dig deep, deep, deep into the richness of learning, no matter where you find yourself on your journey in classical education. Discover over 35 self-paced courses, new content regularly added, community forums, and recently added accreditation through ACSI. That's a pretty big deal. So if you want to check this out, you can begin your journey at www.classicalu.com. That is the letter U. It's called classicalu.com. And if you are a Close Reads listener, which in theory you are, if you are listening to the show, maybe not even in theory, literally. No, you no, are it's a, actual. Yeah. <laughs> then you can head over to classicalu.com slash code and enter the code Cersei Podcast at checkout. And that will get you free access to Classical U through June 29th. And again, that's classicalu.com slash code. Don't forget that slash code in there because I think some people were having some, some trouble at figuring out where to go. So Again, it's classicalu.com slash code. And the code itself is Cersei Podcast, all one word, all lowercase. So C-I-R-C-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And uh, again, that's free access to Classical U through June 29th. All right. Well, we are going to answer questions from literal Close Reads listeners now. <laughs> and we have a couple different threads here uh, on the uh, Close Reads Facebook, uh, Facebook group, um, which, of course, you can join if you want to join the conversation on this book. And... Um, we talked a lot about in this conversation over the last few weeks in particular about the note at the end that it, you know, the afterward that is in some editions and Sarah, Sarah asks, can you please, she didn't actually ask a question. She made a statement, please. She made a demand. Please discuss, (laughs) please discuss further whether this afterward detracts from the quality of the book. Also do all of Moody's books have a moral message? Um, would you say that Laura Ingalls Wilder writes with a message? Please compare and contrast Moody and Wilder's writing. So um, there's a couple. There's a couple different things going on there. But let's talk about this idea of whether it detracts from the quality of the book. We touched on it a little bit, um, but let's ass- let's assume we you know we're gonna we need to dive in on it again. So Adam, I'm gonna turn to you first on this one. Do you would you say that it it detracts from the quality of the book at all, or is it you know it might theoretically det- detract from a reader's experience who has read the afterword? Hmm, that's a good question because, because the afterword is another, uh, it's another self-conscious statement from the author mm-hmm. about, his, about his book. I mean, I think yeah, I might have touched yeah. on this last time. And my perspective on literary theory is that self-conscious statements from the author about the purpose and nature of the book are... Uh, are to be respected and hold on, you know, carry a lot of weight. Sure. Yeah. So 
So um, I, I would definitely say that the authors afterward uh, should color what we think about his goal, about yeah. what he meant. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things I was trying to allude to at the end last time before I had to leave, if I remember right, is that the, uh, the way that he went about making his point touched on some universal themes. Yeah. And indeed, I think he would have agreed that he was trying to touch on universal themes. One of the reasons he's so, right, he was right, so right. adamant about making the point that he was making is because he thought it was universal, right? He thought it was, he thought it was significant. And, but, but I think that the fact that his story touches on universal themes, even in the process of, of making a culturally bounded point, um, gives, the, gives the story uh, significance beyond that point. Mm. Because it, just to, to use the details of the story, he wants to make, he wants to give young boys um, a brush with the kind of young boyhood that he thinks is good for America in the 1950s. Mm. And in the process, describes boyhood in ways that make our hearts leap and describes an, uh, a relationship between a boy and his father that has nothing to do with the 1950s or the 1890s or any time and place because it's it's a universal relationship and i think the the book has value in the way that it um turns our hearts and our minds toward that universal relationship completely apart from whether we use it as a as a didactic tool to raise our own children mm. Heidi, do you think it detracts from the quality of the book? I mean, I think Adam's point, you know, he makes a distinction there that we certainly need to, I mean, maybe I'm making the distinction that he wasn't making actually, but you, Adam, you were saying that we need to at least be aware of it and we need to take it into account and we need to yeah. listen to what he's trying to say about what, about his own work. But that doesn't, ne- but taking it into account doesn't necessarily, I mean, it could still in theory make, it could take away from the book. So, Mm. Heidi, I mean, what do you think about that? I don't think it detracts from the book, but I'm glad it was an afterword and not a forward. Um, That's interesting. I think that when you read the purpose of this is what I want my book to mean to you, I from an author, I I think that could potentially detract from it if you read it that way. Um, you I mean like, like that it could, was an afterward. You need to have the experience of reading it first, then you could read that, and then you st- and then then that leads into study of the book. Yeah, and I don't necessarily mean that to be a hard and fast universal statement, but that specifically in Little Britches, the content of that afterward, I think, worked as an afterward rather than a forward. I think if that had been and and, and to be honest, because it's a children's book, I, it wasn't surprising. Like mm-hmm. there, there is no sense of. Oh my goodness, that's what you're trying to do? Like that, right, that right. seems like it was really clear throughout the book. And and it worked. What I like about it being an afterword is that you're already invested in this man's life and his journey and his childhood. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you're you're emotionally caught up in kind of the glory and the sadness of his life. And so by the time you get to the afterword and you see he intended this to have kind of a a more a widespread impact and he wanted, I, I think that really worked. I thought it was lovely and I, I thought it added to the book, but mm-hmm. I, I don't like to be told by an author before I read something, what he wants me to get, he or she wants me to get out of it. Um, I think you should let the book speak for itself at that point in general, you know, probably with some exceptions, but I like that this was an afterward. And I also agree with Adam that, um, if there is something else, we're not bound necessarily by what the author 
stated intention is to only find that in the book. You know, and I know I've mentioned this before with a Christmas Carol. Dickens said, "I wanted this to to, to produce uh, social change," and it didn't really work like that. It ended up being for all, almost everybody, an insight into the human condition through Scrooge. But that wasn't necessarily Dickens' stated purpose. Mm. But it works. But there was more to it, and that's perfectly fine too. Mm. I like the way. Um I like what you said, Heidi, about the difference between an afterward and a forward. That if he had put that at the beginning, uh, then then we would have been he would have been telling us what to do with it, do with the mm-hmm. story. And there's a sense in which there's not really any need for a story after that. What right. if what you're doing is is preaching a sermon or or writing yeah. a broadside or writing an editorial? Mm-hmm. Um, why write a novel? Those are two those are two different things. Yeah, I like the way. I sorry, go ahead, David. Oh, I was just going to say, and there's, you know, there is that distinction between, am I reading it, like, am I, am I just reading it for the first time, or am I really getting studying it closely? You know, like when you just read it to your kids for the first time, that that's a different thing you're going after, or when you read it for yourself, than it is when you start really trying to do a literary type of reading, right? Would you say that's fair? So then that afterward becomes maybe more useful from a studying trying to dive deep into it perspective than just that first experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And, and the, you know, obviously some, I don't want to come across like, uh, like I'm saying, um, no books written for social reasons should be considered great literature. That, that would be a terrible ground to stand no, on. That's, I, I, I don't think hear you saying that. Okay. Yeah. I, I think immediately of Huckleberry Finn, uh-huh. which begins even in the foreword with a, a statement of didactic purpose, right? That ironic um, uh, forward that says, anybody trying to find a moral in this book will be shot. Uh-huh. I mean, obviously Twain is saying as loud as he can, I am about to lo- unload a moral on you. Right. And I'm going to start on page one and I'm going to continue all the way through to the end. So it's not that a novel can't ever be written for a, for a didactic purpose. Um, I once heard someone say that 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 little note at the beginning was an example of someone being both ironic and ironic at the same time. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I love it. Uh, but but I will say this: if Ralph Moody had had uh, you know done what Heidi was talking about and put that afterward in the foreword, um, I might not have read it. Right. I might have said, "Okay, I get what you're trying to say. Now I can save time, and <laughs> having read your sermon, go read somebody else's novel." Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So. So can we can we compare that to? She asks if we can compare it to Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, do you see? I mean, we didn't we don't get an afterward in in Little House in the Prairies. Say, um, there's lots of there's lots of sources, and letters, and and other things like that that you can study her work and get a sense of what she's after. But in just comparing the two works themselves, do they do they seem like they're after the same thing to you? What do you think, uh, Adam? That's a good question. I I think it's problematic for me because before I read the afterward, what I figured Ralph Moody was after was was what I imagine um, Laura Ingalls Wilder is after, which is a a um, a fond reminiscence of childhood where she praises uh, the universal principles that made that make life worth living in a general way. Uh, and tells a great yarn in the process. Hmm. And I think that's, that's my impression of, of what Wilder is after. And I would like to think that's what the, that's what the, the glory of Little Bridges is as well. Hmm. But I think the, the presence of that afterward kind of throws a wrench in it for me. 
You know, Claire responded to this question and, and it's not, it's not a question that she wrote writes here. Well, she does have a question at the end, but since she posted it publicly on a public, on a mostly public page, I'm going to actually um, share some of her comments here. I hope she's okay with that. Um, but she wrote that in some ways the afterward ruined the book for her. She says, up until then, I enjoyed it just for being a story about a boy growing up in a different time period than I did. But then the afterwards spoiled it. Sure, he had a good childhood. But looking at it from a historical perspective, lots of kids did not. There were still kids working in factories. Native American children were forced from their lands and were horribly treated on reservations. Black children didn't have equal rights. Girls had no opportunities. And in the 50s, when he writes this, people were fighting against social inequality. Black kids literally fighting to be allowed into equal education. Girls trying to be more than wives, teachers, and secretaries. And he has the nerve to say, kids these days, I, well, I don't know what their deal is. Uh, she says she's paraphrasing there. But it was a bit infuriating to her um, that he was so flippant. Maybe I'm reading it too much into this, she says, but dang, things needed to change. And it's great. He had a good childhood and I enjoyed reading about it. But to say things were better in the, better in the good old days, ha, for who? Let me get off my soapbox now, she says. Um, do you, what do you think of that, uh, Heidi? What do you think of what Claire says? Right. Well, I, I think that this has been a thread of conversation between the three of us as we've recorded the podcast. This idea of romanticizing or glorifying a past era is, and, and we talked about some of the potential pitfalls of that and some of the, you know, redemptive potential of that. And I, I think that this is, that, that, to be honest, is why I liked the afterword, because that kind of gets those exact questions going, which I find those very human and literary questions, which is now that I know the author's statement of purpose, did it work? Do I agree with the author's statement of purpose? If I don't, as she doesn't, then do I still like the book? And should I then read it differently and understand it differently. Those those are the kinds of things I, I find really interesting and create good discussion, whether it's in a classroom or in a family or even inside my own head. And so I'm not phased by that uh, when I encounter that in a book. I, we are not bound to think about a book what the author tells us to think about a book. It needs to be factored in, but I don't, we're not bound by that. So we can make our own decisions then on and um, and how we interpret it as long as it's what, faithful. What do you to mean by that? What do you mean by ba- right? Okay, so yeah, there's that. That's the key. That's a key stipulation there. But what do yes. you mean ba- bound by? We're not bound. You said it could be part of it, right. but well, I, what I'm saying is that for a comment like like what she makes, then we're not bound to say, well, now the the book failed because the author intended me to feel this way and I don't. Ah, uh, okay. Adam, what do you think of that? Um, hmm. Yeah, I think that... Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Fight, fight, fight. Well, I mean, I think Heidi's right in a way. If, if the author wants me to feel this way and I don't, doesn't necessarily mean the book fails because I think that's... I think Ralph Moody is doing something political mm-hmm, and social exactly. with his afterward. And he's... Um, doing something profoundly non-literary, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. And when we go to consider his work as a, as a work of literature, he's confusing the issue mm-hmm. a little bit. I, um, and it's troubling for me because I would actually state the case a little differently than Heidi. I would say that we are bound 
by his, um, in some ways, by his opinions about his topic, at least as concerns his own novel. We, we, there's a sense in which we're bound to say, after we read his afterward, this is what Ralph Moody meant. We're, we're, because it is. We have it from his own mouth. What he meant by Little Britches is what he said in his afterward. And so uh, that's something to consider to just to kind of toss into our conversation. Um, we don't have a choice when we come to the question of what did Ralph Moody mean? And there's, there's a sense in which all, reading all literature, it comes down to answering that question, at least in my view. The main question of reading literature is what does the author mean? And if what he means is kitsch today, then I wonder if, if I can't remember her name, I'm sorry. I wonder if the uh, commenter Claire, has a point. Claire. That's why I, when I was talking earlier, I was saying, yeah, and in the process of making this case that I may or may not think is worthy to make, he alludes to some universal truths along the way, then that's what I would latch on to. So I, I, boy, it's a tough one for me. I I really wish he hadn't written the afterward because it, it, because it binds me in a way because of my philosophy of reading (laughs) that, um, that I don't want to be bound. (laughs) Well, um, but, but he also, so I'm, this is interesting. This is really interesting stuff because mm-hmm. in a sense though, doesn't he also, he says more in the book than what he says in the afterward and not, not yes. in the sense that he, yes. in the sense that it's a more holistic vision, it seems like he, he, yes. he, he, he makes like three statements in an afterward and he, and in the book, he's casting a vision for the world, for the universe in a sense, right? And that's where that universality comes into it. And so what he says by, by nature of offering us these universal things, these universal principles that you're alluding to is, is, is as valid as what he's saying in the afterward that he doesn't say in the afterward. Right. Right. That's what I would have to go to. I would have to go to that, that his statements in the afterward aren't an exhaustive list of the things he was thinking when he wrote Mm -hmm. the novel. They're just some of the things he was thinking. Yeah. And one of my, you know, one of the things I was thinking about or wondering, I guess, is did he write this afterward because, you know, the book's out for 20 years or 10 years or something. And the conversation around the afterward wasn't, he was like, it's not quite where I want it to be. So if I write this, I can shape the conversation around it a little bit. Like, I'd love Maybe. to know when he wrote the after. I mean, I'm pu- it's purely, I mean, like I said, I was just wondering. Speculative, yeah. Speculative. I don't actually know that. So maybe I just should stop talking. But it was, a, it was <laughs> I was just wondering if perhaps there's a, you know, if what part of what he's doing there is shaping conversation or pointing us towards one specific part of the book. But as you said, it's not necessarily exhaustive or comprehensive of the things that he's saying in the book. No, in, in some ways... I mean, he wouldn't have written the book if he could write everything, as you said earlier, if he could just write an essay that was, that was comprehensively covering everything that the book covered. Right. And, but, but there's another implication of that, which is that if he has to come around and write an essay 20 years later or an afterward 20 years later, however long it was, to make it more clear what he meant, then, then that's, a, that's a sign that he didn't do quite as well as he could have done the first time. Theoretically, though, couldn't it also be a sign that the, perhaps the, the, the generation, that the readers didn't have the ears to hear what he was trying to say? Theoretically speaking? Sure. I suppose. <laughs> well, anyway, that shut down the conversation. Um, okay, huh. so I don't... I don't and I, you know, we, I'd, we'd have to get into that a little bit more. But um, Ilya asks 
well, she says she would love to hear more about what Heidi, what you were saying about this and the works of Wendell Berry. And she says, I mean, we've just been talking about this a little bit, but do both glorify the old world in similar ways? Do you consider either of them, the canon of Berry and the works of Ralph Moody, to be sentimental or idealistic? Why or why not? Do they have different objectives? So on the one hand, do you do either of you think that what Moody is doing here and then what Wendell Berry is doing is glorifying this old world? Is yeah. that how you would put yeah. it? Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's true. I think that what Ralph Moody is doing, because these are, this is, this is a children's book. I think he's doing something a little simpler than what Wendell Berry's trying to get at, which is a more comprehensive uh, kind of vision or philosophy of the world and of our nation and of humanity and the land. Like Wendell Berry's trying to kind of um, bring, he, he has a profoundly conservative vision of the world in the true sense of conservative, of preserving and conserving what is good in a culture. And Ralph Moody is, uh, although he might certainly agree with that, this particular book has a narrower aim to it. And um, so the question of whether or not they each succeed um, is a larger question, but just in terms of that kind of vision or goal, Ralph Moody seems to have pretty clearly stated he's talking about this old-fashioned pioneer kind of hardworking family culture childhood. Do, so do you, Adam, would you consider would you consider this book sentimental? I do. Mm, yes. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I think it's sentimental. And I don't know if I'd, I would call that a mark against it necessarily. Right. I think that's um, that's one of the reasons I liked it. You know, I I loved it, his, his the the warmth and the longing that he expressed, even in his plain, straightforward language, for his father and the in the relationship they had before his father died, and and the rose-colored glasses that everything you know that he viewed everything through. I loved it. But yeah, I definitely think it's sentimental. Do you, Heidi, do you think, would you consider Wendell Berry sentimental? And I, I, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like that question at all. Um, <sighs> I consider Wendell Berry sentimental. No, Wait, no normally you say yeah. things are a good question. Yeah, I know that. Well, I didn't say that wasn't a good question. <laughs> I said I didn't like it. Um, those are two different things. I, I don't think Wendell Berry is sentimental. I don't. But I think he is often interpreted as sentimental and kind of um, mis- he's misinterpreted as sentimental. And I think that is one of the um, risks of, of reading Wendell Berry if you're not a close reader. Huh. So are you saying that anybody who reads him as sentimental is 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 a uh, not Man, reading? Razor David. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, because I don't think there's anything profoundly flawed about a sentimental reading, and the the danger of a sentimental reading is that you miss nuances, um, and that it's it becomes something you can't possibly achieve like nobody lives this sentimental life 
And so that's, that's a, I think that's a risk in it, but lots of people read Wendell Berry just for the, you know, the sweet story of Hannah Coulter's marriage or whatever, like that's, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's so much more there. And I think with Ralph Moody, because he's writing a children's book, and I keep hammering on that, that, that there is not the same kind of pressure there's as to to make it transcend sentimentalism. Like, I don't mind it in the book. Right. I agree with you. I agree with you. It's a kid's story about a childhood written for kids. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, if if sentimental can't be applied to every uh, book in that category, then there's something the matter with the world. Mm. I, and I think uh, Barry's work is in a completely different category. When he, uh, instead of sentiment, what he's doing is talking about the human condition and questioning whether progress is an antidote. Mm. That's, and that's not sentimental. That's, uh, there's something about Barry that's, that's profoundly concerned with the present even mm-hmm. as he looks back into the past, he's, he's doing that as a, as almost a almost an excuse for for critiquing the present. Yeah, you know it's funny that people. I've never read Barry as sentimental. In fact, I read him as quite cynical. <laughs> huh. um, and I mean, I think I would call him a hopeful cynic. Um, but you know, I, I might be that might be that I've sat and talked with him. <laughs> you know, huh. and I've. So that's kind of colors it a little bit, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, did Ralph's father, this is from Gabriel. Did Ralph, Gab, Gab, Gabrielle, did Ralph's father understand how sick and close to death he was? Do you think it certainly seems that would affect how much quote man training and quote he gave Ralph at such a young age. Is this book a reflection on Ralph's success at learning how to be a man or rather a reflection on the father's triumph succeeding at raising his son before his own untimely death? Um, okay, so there's did Ralph? Do you guys think Ralph's father understood how sick and close to death he was? Adam, what would you say? What do you think the book? Is I saying? I don't think we get that. I don't think we get a window into that in the text of the story, uh, because it's told from it's told from Ralph's perspective through his through his eight years old, nine years old, ten years old eyes, and so I don't think um, I don't think we have that information, so we can't speculate. It's not the story of Ralph's father. It's the story of Ralph. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and it, if Ralph's father were the narrator, or if the narrator were looking through his eyes, that would be one thing. But I don't think we have that info, so we can't go there. What do you, do you, does the book seem like a reflection on Ralph's success at learning how to be a man or the father's triumph? Can those be distinguished? Well, I, you sure do, you sure do um, respect and admire and and um, feel a sense of triumph for the father when Ralph, uh, you know, finally becomes a man there at the end. You, you do, you do. The thought does cross your mind. Nice job, man. You got it done. <laughs> Cause he's, you know, you, you get a sense that Ralph is going to turn out great. But I think in terms structurally, the story is about Ralph. It's about Ralph's development, not his father's project. I would say. Do you feel Heidi, do you at the end, do, are we, do you think we're meant to feel more, pride in I, th- I think maybe this is what the question is getting at are we meant to feel more pride in the what what ralph has ultimately accomplished in his journey or more of the hat tip to the father i mean i guess right. he just kind of answered that but what do you think i think that that's an open question 
I, I, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but I'm a bit unwilling to pick a lane on that. I think that that's embedded within the complexity of the story is that the kind of um, the, the threads that are tying these two generations together, that this is a, a joint, you know, Ralph, Ralph's manhood and his character, his integrity, his virtue is a project that has been invested in by multiple people by mother, by father, by himself, by the other men in his life, by the land itself, by the horses, right? This is, so I do agree with Adam that the focus is on Ralph, but I think the hero of the story, so to speak, is father. So, um, and and we've talked a lot about the how Ralph idealizes his father um, because there's not really... And, and I know there's some pushback on that and on the Facebook group, kind of that, how we call them flat or whatever, but I, I still would stand by that because there's not a flaw in father. So there's what we see of him is still the great man through the young man's eyes, through his son, through the eyes of a child, that the, the vision of memory that we have of Ralph's father is, the way that a, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old boy would feel about a really good man who was his father, and who died when he was young. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the mother was around, and so as he was, right. you know, later on, you read, the, you can read further books, and yeah, the that transition to a colored the way he remembers. Yes, that transition to a mutual relationship is that that's been shortchanged. That's the great grief of this story, right? That that he doesn't get to know his father as a peer. He is always going to be father, the the father in this book. And um so I do think that there's that element of idealization, which again, this is a children's book. That's not bad. Like this is that that's not an attack on the book. That's part of the of the glory of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, next question. I mean, these Q and A episodes are always a little bit jumping around a little bit, but this is from uh, a little bit jumping around a little bit. That was good. <laughs> good speaking there. Um, you know, just wanted to emphasize the little bit part. Uh, Autumn asks, "Can you talk about the role of memory as guide?" Uh, she says. Uh, repetition of certain phrases seemed important and the word ritual was used several times throughout the book. Ralph often calls to mind snippets of mother's poetry recitations when we see him struggling to make decisions and father comments about how Mame, quote, remembers them all, end quote, which makes her proud. That's in chapter 30. Uh, Oh, remembers all of the passages. So the role of memory as guide in this book. Adam, what do you think about this question? Not about the question. How would you answer it, I suppose, is the better thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I think the um, uh, that's interesting. I think that the the fact that the whole book is a memory is probably even more significant. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I I don't think I would give Ralph Moody the author. Um, I don't think I would give him credit for um, carrying on a novel length discussion of memory as a concept. I think what he's doing instead is is uh, remembering. Uh-huh. And, and I think that's a slightly different, that's a slightly different thing. Um, he's in, 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 instead of discussing it, he's doing it. Mm. And I think we participate in it vicariously. And maybe that's where the significance lies in us uh, following his lead and going back into our own 
memories and uh, finding what we find there. Maybe that's one of the uses to which this story can be put. It does bring up though the the thought that his memories must have sh- of his father, for example, must have shaped him pretty dramatically after the book was over, like after the point that this book. So we don't get that in the book, but it certainly seems that you know from the moment when he says that prayer till the moment he writes the book, th- those memories would inform not just the telling, but the person he became. And so it, 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 the way, the way he, in other words, the way he thought about his father and those experiences mm-hmm. would determine the kind of person he became just as I'm much sure. as maybe the kind of person his father actually was given how young he was when he died. I mean, I'm kind of just some mm-hmm. gray area in what I'm saying there, but how do you, right. do you, what do you what do you make of the uh, the the um, idea of ritual being in this book as much as it is? Right, I think that it's that's a very big deal. The book and we've talked about this over the course of the podcast. The book is written almost like a series of anecdotes or episodes, but the the family rituals are embedded within. Right, they are kind of this thread: the family dinner, the gathering together, the way they share a meal, uh, the 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 book opens with kind of disrupted ritual because they're moving and focuses on the stress of that, um, that they're living in a hotel room and yeah, mother yeah, yeah. just can't handle it, right? Because she wants to be home where she could gather her family around the table and go back to this idea of ritual and the, the liturgies of an ordinary life and how formative they are. They seem very intentional. Parent, The parents seem very intentional about that. They understand that. They're building their family upon that. And then the story ends with a ritual, them gathering around the table and her passing the baton on to Ralph as the, the man of the family. So it is very clear throughout the story that in spite of the episodic structure of the novel, it is the rituals of the family are this guiding principle, principle and moral guide to, uh, to the children of the family. Hmm. Okay. Next question. Got time for a few more here. I can, Amy's asks, I continue to think about the conversation around quote, reporting the facts versus quote, reflecting truth to put it simplistically. That's her point. That's her, her uh, commenting on her own question. I agree with your consensus, Amy says, that a story, even a memoir, can be true while not exactly presenting every episode factually. Heidi's example of the James Frey book was an interesting recent example, though my memory of that one is that he made up stories from whole cloth. I do wonder at what point this might be a problem for the reader in trusting the author. In your opinion, where does this line fall and how is the reader to discern? Adam, what do you think about this? You And, and I ask you in part because of how much you, you know, you, you are, um, how much you emphasize what an author says about his work. And so not that we don't, but you just particularly. I didn't put that, I didn't say that. Um, so she says, I wonder, I wonder at what point this might be a problem for the reader in trusting the author. So this, this concept we talked about, about reflect reporting the facts versus reflecting truth. So, is this, is this ever a problem for you? Um, how do you deal with this? Do, do you ever yeah. have... How do you approach that when, you're, when you have questions about how much you're supposed to trust the author? When he puts in an afterword like Ralph Moody did, <laughs> that's when I have trouble with it. Yeah. Because basically what he's doing is um, he's inserting himself as the, as the uh, subject of the autobiography mm-hmm. and saying, I'm trying to make a point and using my own history to make it. 
that, that it seems like there's a burden that immediately emerges on him to be telling the truth mm. in a factual way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, Whereas, to that point, he, he, you're saying, well, how, I have to just take your word for everything that you're saying here. Right. Whereas Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn, writing for a social political purpose, is writing a fiction. Mm-hmm. And he never said he was Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer or anybody else. It's all, they all made, he made them all up. It's a work of literature. And, so, and I think that there, um, I mean, I, th- I think there's a, there's a big difference there. I, the well, question was what, you know, when does the, when yeah. does the author's factuality um, create a problem? And I mm-hmm. think, I think maybe one case in which it does is when he, when he. Um, is the re- case we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask you this. Had, had he not put that afterward in there, would you have felt like it would put less of a burden on him to tell, to spell everything out exactly how it was? Absolutely. So you, so, so because he puts that there, it needs to be more precisely true to real life. I think so. I mean, yeah. I think I mentioned the great brain by, um, by John Fitzgerald. Those, yeah, those, did, yeah. those books a time, a time or two ago. Um, wonderful stories about obviously it had origins in his own childhood and half the stuff in there was fanciful. You know, it was, and you read it and you understand it was fanciful and he's taken the kernel of his own life, which, which someone said to him one day, Hey, you should write a story. That's really cool. And he said, okay. And he did. And it was half true and half a work of fiction and nobody has a, the slightest bit of problem with that. And I don't think his, I don't think his uh, reliability suffers b- because of knowing that that he embellished a tale for the sake of his art. Hmm. I just lost my question. I just lost my phone. Just... Well, I don't know if that directly answers the question, but I, <laughs> but I think in the case we're looking at, when, in the presence of that afterward, I think there is an issue there. Heidi, what about you? I mean, so do you think that so there's this burden of him to? to tell exactly the truth, like make it a very true memoir versus this idea of what is, how does she put it? Reflecting truth. So does, for you, does this afterward push him, does he see forcing himself into the box to, to tell things exactly how they are in your opinion? Do you agree no, with that? I, I, I don't. I, 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 I think author intent is a interpretive tool. I don't think it's the interpretive tool. I think the work itself is the interpretive tool. And so I, well, so I'm not phased by, by that. I don't, I think what James Frey did was tell a good story and that's what a novel is. I think that what Ralph Moody did was tell a, tell a great story. That's what a novel is. So that I, well, but if Frey, so if Frey puts the word memoir on it, mm-hmm. there is an implication that there's fact there, but then if you sure. so it, it makes James Frey a liar, it doesn't impact the quality of his work. So that is so, so the work I guess can still be valuable of, even if it's a lie yeah and probably even, yeah. better than if like i know some of the things he lied about he he puts a girl into the story who he claims was a good friend of his who died in high school and he claims that that contributed to his addiction but what he barely he didn't even know her that actually happens but he didn't know the girl but if he had written that into his story it would have been a worse story so it makes him a liar that's true but the story is good now whether he should have called it a memoir or a novel that goes to his integrity, not the integrity of the work itself. So I'm not trying to dissociate, but in this particular story, <laughs> I think what he's doing is I, 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 I do agree that if you claim to tell the truth, you should tell the truth. 
So I, I think that's true. About so moral, morally, yes. you should yes. say you're good. You should definitely tell the truth. Adam, do you, do you want <laughs> to go after her new critic have, tendencies? Go for it. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who, uh, who I encourage. Wait, is it going to be read, me? No, no. <laughs> I had a friend whom I encouraged to read Jaber Crow by yeah. Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of characters in Jaberco that I think you really would identify with, and the uh, the principles that Jaber tries to live by, and the principles that that inform the little town that that Barry describes would really resonate with him. And he read it halfway, got halfway through, and got so excited about um, um, uh, Port William, the mm-hmm. the town that mm-hmm. the story takes place in, that he that he went on Google Earth and tried to find it. Mm. And of course, it doesn't exist, right? Because though Jaber Crow is a memoir, it's entirely fictional. Mm-hmm. There's nobody, never ever, ever was anyone named Jaber Crow, and Port William is, a, is an invention of Wendell Berry's imagination. My friend was so offended when he found out that there's no such thing as Port William that he put the book down and never went back to it. Huh. I said, I can't so- imagine what a, what a lie was foisted upon me. So even, even if, even though it's, Roughly, I mean, there is Port Washington, and that's that's the town that Barry's you know address is in. It's this small town, and so I mean, so even though it was loosely, you know, loosely, loosely based on experiences, you know, that that uh, reflection of truth that still bothered him. Yeah, because he was looking for huh. a memoir. He thought it was a memoir. Huh. I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is there is a there is a certain when we put memoir on the cover, there is a certain. Um, it's a certain genre mm-hmm. right. and we expect a level of factual accuracy right. that we don't so expect to, when it says right. novel on the front. But to go to her question, which is, it's a really good question. Um, but when she says, can't, what does that mean for something along the lines of trusting the author? And, and so I think we could, we like Aristotle go to like trusting the author for what, right? Let's define our terms. Are we trusting the author to be a, to tell a good story are we what are we trusting the author for um and so that goes to what you're just saying adam that if you claim something to be a memoir and you say it's factually true that maybe don't do that if you're writing a story that's a little bit fictionalized (laughs) because that yes (laughs) um but there's i don't think an author is under an obligation to write a story that is factually true. I think that a story by definition is something other than history. Absolutely. It's an, it's a form that is, it's very important that that form is true to itself and is what it is. It is a story. And so if that's what we're talking about trusting an author for, then let's find out what a story is and then let's approach a story like that. Until the author says, these are the details of my life, and I right. think everybody in the 1950s should live like I lived. Right. Well, and your point and about he that basically afterward opens himself is, up to. Yep. Yeah. Well, you didn't Scrutiny. tell the truth. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Sending an investigative reporter out there to discredit him and say that. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, maybe we need to send someone out there. You're not far, Heidi. <laughs> uh, Christy asks, or Christy says, "I'm not sure if you've recorded yet." Uh, we had not, <laughs> but I'd like to hear about how the Western genre seems to be the pinnacle, so to speak, of independent masculinity, toughness, etc., while also offering 
this mentorship role in many of its characters. I find it interesting that the genre values tradition in this way, though it's happening in a setting that's wild and uncivilized. These are just oh, some of the thoughts off the top of my head. I like that question. I don't know. but Yeah, but there's no question here. Should we move on? She would like to hear thoughts about it. She'd like to hear... She just wants to hear us talk about that. We can talk I, about it. Right? That's a great question. And I think you should talk about that, David. Adam, yeah. my <laughs> thoughts are that you should talk about this. Because <laughs> today I'm a moderator. <laughs> that just jumps in when I want to. So the Western genre being the pinnacle, so to speak, of independent masculinity, toughness, etc., while also offering this mentorship role in many of its characters. Do you have thoughts on this, Adam? Well, I think something that, that I that we talked about before, maybe early on in our discussion of Little Bridges, is the idea that the, the whole romance of the Western genre and the, indeed of that period of American history or that facet of American culture is the tension between the wilderness and the and civilization and the problem of establishing civilization in the wilderness. And and three I think three things are really critical to that process. And the one is the individual individualism and rugged masculinity, if you want to call it, uh, that's necessary to forge out into the wilderness, the courage that it takes and the self-reliance that it takes to do that. And then secondly, the respect for and longing for the traditions that you're, that you're there to establish. Those are going to be the things that are the bulwark against the encroaching wilderness. So those two things go together in the Western genre, I think. Hmm. rugged individual self-reliant man who is there for the purpose of establishing honored traditions and bringing civilization into the wilderness and i think that mentorship kind of grows naturally out of that pro- uh, out of that project as uh, you know people age and have children and bring people along into the project but the but the whole the whole project itself that embodies the the American move westward and establishing the civilization from sea to shining sea, I think involves those elements necessarily. So I think that's what makes a Western great. Hmm. There is a, there's a common, I don't know if I'd say it's a, I guess it's a common trope in Western stories, including movies. You see it in Shane, for example, you see it in the searchers where <clears throat> you have this sort of individualistic, you know, to use her word, rugged hero type character or character that seems like he or she is supposed to be a hero, usually a man. And then you have, you have somewhere in the middle, in the midst of the story, a young person who is sort of the, it's, this person might be the character who has to be rescued as in the searchers or in many other stories. It might be the young person who is, wants to be like, this rugged individualistic character as in Shane um, and many other stories. Sometimes that character is often, well, often it's a young, often it's a boy who is sort of trying to be, trying to grow up much like in this story. But that's sort of, that character often seems to be caught between the two poles, you know, seems to be part, you know, it seems in a sense that that character is being brought, that, that, that sort of individualistic character is forced out of his own individualism to interact with this young person. Yep. You know, in Shane, you have to teach this lesson. In this book, High comes back. You know, this is in many ways not a sort of archetypal Western story, the one we're talking about, Cobrish's. In in um Searcher, in the Searchers, John Wayne's character, Ethan Edwards, he is this very, you know, he's a he's a 
Marshall turned outlaw turned Marshall type character, you know, and he is, he has to let go of his normal perspectives and go rescue his niece. So, so oftentimes it's this character who, who is pulling against the instincts of this individualistic character. And oftentimes the implication being that those individualistic instincts of that character are sort of a failing for them in some ways. And so that tension is often at the heart of many of these stories, because the question is, is what there is in the course of, in the course of um, moving across this wilderness and trying to bring, supposedly trying to bring civilization to it, is their individualism actually a virtue is one of the key questions in the richest Western stories, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you get, you know, you might get the more like just sort of base, base, you know, basic versions of these genre stories. <laughs> um, and in those cases, maybe that's, that's not the case. It's just sort of like in their individualism, their rugged individualism, so to speak, is held up to be a virtue. But I think the most profound versions of this kind of genre is, or examples in this genre, is when that individualism is is challenged and the the question of whether that's a virtue becomes really true to the heart of the story i mean the lonesome dove is one of the great examples of this by the way um and so is um the works of ab guthrie but um i think that that's the greatest western stories are the ones that say that ask you know the virtues that we ostensibly attribute to like being a great cowboy or a great explorer or something are those are those virtues that that can be sustained when you are bringing civilization or which can sustain civilization? Does That's why I think that at the end of it, the cowboy almost always has to leave because the virtues of that character that, that make that character who he is are not necessarily the same virtues that sustain the community that he is trying to preserve or protect or help oh, yeah. establish. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's necessary in stage one of the... Yeah, aiming of the will, and sometimes he has to come back and kick someone out, right? But stage two happens without him. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's where I think, like you know, I think reading on in this series is, is really interesting because I think it does explore that a little bit. Um, okay, well, we have do we have time for one more? Yeah, sure. Okay, here we go. Krista, she asks, "What if they hadn't moved?" The father would, I'm sure, still have died at a relatively similar age. You know, that's one of the reasons that they that they moved in the first place. And ultimately, you know, one of the sad things about the story is this whole adventure that the family was after, you know, it didn't work. So then Krista asks, would Ralph still have learned, quote, how to be a man in much of the same ways as he did while they were in Colorado? I don't mean for this, she says, to be an urban versus rural debate. So maybe a clarification would be to ask if the difficulties of ranching made Ralph into a different man than he would have been had they stayed in New England. And Susan mentions that this does get explored perhaps a little bit in future uh, future books. But what do you think about this? Would he did Do you think it made him a different kind of man? Um, and could he have still grown up I mean, do you think he still would have grown up to be a man? And and I'm curious what you think of this question in relation specifically to that afterward that he puts out there. Yeah, Adam, what exactly. do you think about that? I it sounds like he's uh, one of the purposes of this story is to extol the virtues of the of the West and the the kinds of the kinds of manhood that spring maybe uniquely from you know cattle ranching and cow poking and tornado ranching and that sort of stuff. So I think I think maybe uh, I think maybe he became the 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 right kind of man in 
Ralph Moody's estimation. Hmm. Heidi? I agree. I think that um, I while you were talking and w- when I read that online, I thought, the afterward, there's no way for us to know that, the answer to that question, obviously, but the afterwards specifically says, I want to extol the virtues of the pioneer childhood, that the liminal space, that the, the, the rugged wilderness and growing up there. Now, on the other hand, though, uh, having spoken about the family rituals, um, the strong character of mother and father, that would have been the same no matter what their context. And so there's certainly no way to tell whether or not Ralph Moody would have wanted to write the same kind of book about a life well spent in a happy childhood in New England. So um, the, the nature of the family was very likely to have been the same. And that's how a lot of us are raising our kids, right? In the suburbs or in the whatever. And and I know she doesn't want to go into the rural versus the country, but parts of what he is extolling is not, it is is also just the the idea of a strong family culture. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. So what if they never did move? What if it was all happened in Massachusetts or wherever it was, but then he decided to set it in the West. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't very well call it a memoir then. (laughs) So many layers of this onion. (laughs) Elizabeth comments, um, I know this is, well, I guess she does ask a question, but she says, do you think the scene where father is hit by the horseless carriage is how it happened? Or could it be a metaphor of the carelessness of modernity colliding with the path of tradition of hard work, integrity, and respect that Moody addresses in his afterward? Hmm. She just posted this two minutes ago. So to that, I would say that if this was Wendell Berry writing this, maybe. (laughs) Right. But what Heidi has been saying all along, I think is really to the point there. This is a kid's story Mm -hmm. Um, written, frankly, by a kid's story author. Right. I think that might be giving him too much credit. Right. Well, I mean, I don't want to speak bad of the dead. Fitzgerald. (laughs) Yeah, those are some some words to drop in the last last minute of the series. (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of which, uh, Heidi, I know you need to go. So I'm going to let you offer some final thoughts on this book and then uh, I'll let Adam comment and then we'll sign off and uh, get ready for next week. So what do you... Final thoughts, Little Britches, Ralph Moody's Little Britches. Sure. Your, your so, final word on this book. Yes. Well, I um, I think I would just... I would say that there is there is a a lot of literary conversation to be had about this book. It's very well written. It's very well crafted. Uh, there's there's a lot going on in this book, but there's nothing wrong with just reading it aloud to your kids and enjoying it for what it is. And um, so I, I look forward to reading. I've I've never read this one before. I look forward to reading through the rest of the series. But when I read it to my kids, which I haven't done, I'm just going to read it and just enjoy it for the story. And um, so, but thanks for the opportunity to discuss it on a more literary level. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Of course. Now go do the thing you have to do, which is a secret and we can't talk about publicly until you put a picture on Instagram. Okay. I won't. Uh, yes. So I am going to say what it is though, because this oh, isn't going okay. up until it's done. So my husband's turning 40 tomorrow and we are, the kids and I bought him a puppy. So oh, we've got to go. I know. And it's such a bad idea. I'm like freaking <laughs> out about it today. That is like, a bad idea. <laughs> Why am I yeah. buying a puppy? <laughs> but it's his so, dog. So he'll, he'll take care of it. No, he won't. <laughs> I am going to take care of this dog. And it's, I mean, he will. He's great. But it's, it's such a bad idea to get a puppy. 
And um, so we're all so excited and it's going to be really adorable, but I'm supposed to pick it up in half an hour. So I got to, I got to go do the thing. So yeah, go make bad pray, decisions. Pray for me. <laughs> Good luck, Heidi. All right. Thanks. Y'all. Thanks. All right, Adam, final thoughts on Little Bridges. I think Little Bridges is a great example of a genre that is, that's got a ton to recommend it. I mean, it's, we've talked about all along that belongs in the same category as Little House on the Prairie. I've mentioned the the Fitzgerald books, The Great Brain. There's a bunch of other ones in that general, in that general classification. And this is a shining example of it. I think it does all of the things that the best that the best titles in that genre do, and it does them all well. And I think um, what Heidi said is really good. Just to read it as a um, to read it with your kids as a as a um, for what it is. I think she said, which is as I would say, a great example of this genre. But there's also one uh, way that it's useful uh, even beyond that. And that is as a type, an, an early type of the, of the memoir, of the, um, the fond reminiscence that actually has a more, a deeply thematic purpose. And I think reading this to prepare students to think about and read books like Huckleberry Finn, books like To Kill a Mockingbird, um, the the novels of Wendell Berry later on, I think that's that's a uh, to see it in a progression that ends with those more mm. mature works mm. might be a useful way to go as well. That mm. so you could you could get the most out of it without pushing it beyond what it's really built for. Mm. I do have a question for you. Do you think how much do you think you would talk? Like, say you're talking about the books with with your kids they ask questions or whatever. How much do you think you would talk about what he tried to say in the afterward with the kids? Like at what point would you do that with your kids? Or do you think that the book will teach them the lessons that he's trying to get? The kids will pick up on that even if you don't tell them what he meant to do. A great question. Thank you for asking it. You're giving me a soapbox here at the end, aren't you? <laughs> I am. I mean, that's, that's kind of the point of the final thoughts, right? <laughs> I would say that if he hasn't said it well enough in his novel so that it needs an afterward... Um, then we should read his novel and notice the deficiency. Hmm. I think a novelist who is trying to do something in his novel, um, we judge the novel based on how well he does that in between the front cover and the back cover. Because the novel is, as I think Heidi mentioned, it's a work of art that has its own rules and has its own structure. Hmm. And the best novels are the ones that that, um, accomplish what the author set out to do all by themselves. Hmm. And I think what I would do is, as I would, I would read this novel and I would have a discussion with my kids about what the novel says and what the author seems to be saying and interact with it as a work on its own and try and let it stand on its own feet. So let me ask you a follow-up to that then. If you're talking about, you know, say this book, this book with your kids and you're kind of talking about, you know, like, what do you think he's trying to do here? What do you think he's trying to say? And you're going to get varying degrees of perception from child to child at varying ages and all that sort of thing, of course. But if, if the child, if your children are consistently sort of perceiving or, or getting, saying the opposite or something different than what Ralph Moody is trying to say, do you think that that then indicates that you're, I mean, do you, do you look at that as something wrong with your children? Do you look at that as something wrong with the book? Do you look at that as something you, I mean, do you need to go out and fix their, their understanding of it, given that he said something very specific? Or is it okay for them at this point to just sort of, you know, let's do this one step at a time and maybe they're getting the wrong thing right now, but, you know, later on they might get something different or they, you know, the more you read books, the more they'll be, get, become more perceptive. How would you, in other words, how would you deal with them not getting 
what he's trying to ask them to get? Yeah, that's another great question. I mean, I, th- I think uh, teaching generally and maybe teaching literature in particular is an exercise in over the long haul inculcating mm-hmm. the right kinds of intellectual habits. Mm-hmm. And the it's over the long haul teaching students to ask the right questions and follow them faithfully where they lead. Mm-hmm. And so you're asking questions when, in a work of literature about who, who the, the protagonist is, what are his goals, what are the obstacles that he faces, what's the, the turning point of the action that determines whether he's going to get what he's after. Yeah, you teach him to ask all those kinds of structural questions that lead to thematic answers. And I think over the long haul, students with a lot of experience in asking those questions tend to read carefully and they tend to uh, arrive at answers that the author was shooting at more often than not. Hmm. And so I would actually not worry too much in the early stages about whether um, kids are getting the quote unquote right answers. I Hmm. would worry much more about whether they were learning to ask the right questions. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I suspect that's an, I mean, in some ways that's freeing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot less anxiety-inducing. Yeah. Yeah, and literature it, is a lot different than math, it turns out. <laughs> it's, it's an aid to, um, it's an aid to con- general contemplation. Hmm. Maybe math is too. I, maybe I just don't understand it well enough. There are fewer <laughs> right answers in literature, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you for taking the last several weeks to talk about this with us. We, um, we have discussed some possible future books over the next you know the next while that we'll need to have you back for and we're gonna have those conversations some more but thank you for taking the time to be here and little uh close reads and uh what bibliophiles crossover you betcha man my pleasure i appreciate it david thanks for the opportunity to be with you it's always a pleasure i know we've gotten great feedback uh every time you've come on so um you know we'll have to keep having you on you seem like you do okay anytime my friend (laughs) well thanks to uh, classical academic press and classical u for sponsoring you remember you can go over to classicalu.com slash code and then use code cersei podcast to get free access to classical u through june 29th Uh, and again the code is cersei podcast and the url is classicalu.com slash code Uh, thanks to heidi thanks to adam andrews um this was a great conversation thanks to everyone who participated asked sent in questions uh commented on the facebook and instagram pages it's been it's been great as always talking about this book with you don't forget next week we are starting sense and sensibility with special guest karen swallow prior we will post a schedule uh, for that on the facebook book group on instagram and also we'll send out an email next week with the schedule and some other information about this book so be on the lookout for that all right with that uh thanks for listening happy reading and we will talk to you next week Thank you.